Sarah, welcome to The Playful Musician. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's really awesome to have... A, you're the first violinist, so this is really exciting for me. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> um, you're in Brooklyn, is that right? I am, yeah. yeah. I've, um, I've been living here in Brooklyn for about, two, oh man, almost three years now. Uh, I was on the Upper West Side for the first... Oh, about 13, 14 years I was in the city. It's hard to believe I've actually been here that long. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in some ways, I, I feel like flies. I moved here yesterday. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I moved down here in June of 2018, um, mm. and it's been great. And my boyfriend and I live here. Awesome. Um, he's a drummer. I don't, you can't really see it here, but he's got his drum kit over here. He's been, <laughs> got set up, his whole rig set up during COVID. Oh, that's cool. Uh, how, are things, how are things in Brooklyn these days? Much better than they were a year ago. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, a year ago was pretty frightening. Um, yeah. You know, New York was, was hit hard with that first wave of, of COVID. Um, you know, and everyone's uncertainty about how to, um, how to exist in that sort of, uh, you know, sort of in this bubble. It was, it was pretty frightening. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been such a relief. You know, I, I got my vaccination um, at the end of March. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that second shot, there was just this immediate, you know, alleviation of weight, you know, this, of you know, just all the stress that we've been under, like you know, wearing masks and just and um, social distancing and all that, and suddenly just knowing I had that, um, that extra layer of protection, mm. um, and that other people around me were were doing the same, um, it just it, it was the first sort of feeling of, of positivity and hope um, that uh, we've had yeah. in a while. So. Yeah, it's nice to see people out and about and being able to to gather with friends again safely. Um, mm. I actually just made, um, my boyfriend and I made the road trip to Indiana um, two weeks ago to visit my family for the first time in, I guess it was 16 months. Wow. Yeah, it was a big old so you know, sob fest in the driveway. Right. <laughs> I bet. You know, because we, we're typically used to seeing each other, you know, every six months or so. I mean, we're a pretty mm. tight family. And, um, yeah. and just, you know, we, we definitely want to play it safe during the, um, during the pandemic. And as much as we wanted to get on a plane or, or to get in the car and, and, um, and visit each other during, you know, during the last year, it just, we knew it wasn't safe. And we didn't want to put each other's health at risk and, and yep. anyone else who was around us. So we just said, look, let's just, you know, we'll, we'll use Zoom, we'll use phone call, texting, we'll, we'll get through this. Um, but then, yeah, as soon as we get our vaccinations, let's get in the car and go. <laughs> <laughs> and we did, you know, as soon as my yeah. sister's vaccinated, she was the last um, to get the vaccination. She got hers in um, uh, mid-April, um, was, okay. was her like two week, when, like once she yeah, had the second yeah. vaccination, two weeks after. And um, yeah, Michael and I got in our car, our car and and did the road trip. And um, oh my God, it felt so good to to see them again and to hug them again. And uh, like right. I said, we were just you know person, crying yeah. in the hall in the in the driveway and just you know long hugs and a lot of joy. Yeah. So yeah. So your mom and your dad and and your sister. Yeah, my my dad actually passed away about oh, I'm, um, twelve I'm years ago. Oh okay. no, it's okay. It's all right. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so my dad passed away about 10, 12 years ago. My sister and my mom. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was them that uh, we were reunited. So and my sister's dog. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys uh, make any music while you were there, or just a little bit? You know, I mean, it was a really short trip. 
because um, yeah. we both Michael and I had to come back for um, you know, teaching and and, uh, and some rehearsals and things. So it was a short short but sweet trip. Um, so yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of music making happening. It was just really you know family time. Yeah, and um, just you know enjoying each other's company, eating meals. We went to <laughs> we went to a minor league baseball game. You know, just like <laughs> just things that we don't typically do. And um, sort of enjoying that time outside. I think that was a big thing was just being able to enjoy the open air and, and um, you know, just doing things together. So Yeah, that must have felt amazing. It did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you mentioned teaching. Are you, uh, so you were teaching at Manhattan School of Music? Yeah, I, I have affiliations with a few schools. Um, my, most of my teaching is actually up at Berkeley the Berkeley College of Music up in okay. Boston. So yeah. I, I commute there. Well, during normal times, <laughs> I commute up there uh, one day a week. So I um, typically go up early Monday morning, teach for about five hours or so, mm. and then I come back uh, Monday night. My schedule is actually adjusting a little bit um, for this fall since there's a, um, a higher number of students who are coming in this fall, obviously, because of you know school, um, on-campus schooling on uh, campus, res resuming. Yeah. So I'll be teaching a day and a half um, up there. Mm -hmm. this year. Um, but I also have affiliations with Manhattan School of Music, so um, I have a, a student in the pre-college program there right now, and um, I uh, also have an affiliation with the new school. Mm -hmm. um, so I was teaching a, a student there this year as well. So um, yeah, and then I have a private studio that I, that I maintain. Um, so yeah, it's a, you know, I, I, love, I love performing, I love recording, and I also love teaching. And I think having um, you know, multiple hats that I'm able to wear is um, something that I really uh, enjoy and I'm grateful to, to do. Yeah. What I'm curious, what in your private studio, like what age range do you generally teach? Um, they're mostly high school, like upper level high school and college. Um, okay. And then I have adults you know, who are um, you know, in their 50s, 60s, um, right. who are, you know, just wanting to either get into jazz for the first time or just, you know, learning about the instrument in general. Um, yeah. it's, it's a really kind of a mixed bag, but mostly the students are coming to me with um, a curiosity about improvisation uh, or just, you know, either they're beginners or they're, they've played some and they're wanting to improve their, their skill level. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. most of my students, I would say, the youngest I have right now um, in my private studio is uh, 19. Okay. I think my oldest is in uh, his 70s. Um, oh, fun. Yes. The adult students are fantastic. They, they <laughs> yeah, have no they're filter. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they're just like, I know nothing. I don't, you know, like, just give me whatever information you can. It's, it, it's really fun. Um, yeah. My youngest student at the pre-college, I think he is 13. Okay. Um, so, so wow. yeah, it's, it's fun. It's a, it's, a, it's a real joy. And they're... Um, at the at Berkeley and the other schools, are you teaching strictly violin, or are you also doing like jazz improvisation or any other things non-violin specific? Uh, with yeah, with, with the schools, I'm primarily doing so. I'm doing private lessons. I'm not doing any yeah. ensembles or any classes. Okay. Um, so I'm doing private instruction. And um, with Berkeley, it's you know there are so many different. Uh, the string faculty is amazing. It's it's one of the most incredible incredible faculties out there. Um, one of the most appealing and, and unique things about it is that every teacher who's there has a very particular style that they sort of specialize in. Mm. So I am sort of a specialist in jazz, sort of bebop material, um, but I also do a 
some you know basic technical instruction. Um, sure. I, you know, I did my my undergraduate degrees. I actually did two of them. One was in violin performance, um, and mm -hmm. one was in jazz studies. So I was doing, you know, prior to um, moving to New York, I was doing a lot of um, classical competitions, and was kind of splitting my time equally between those two those two worlds. They were very kind of separated for me at the time. Right. Um, but so yeah, so the classical repertoire and and technical foundation is very much a part of what I do, and I am very much a part of what I enjoy teaching. So um, that's kind of my my thing when I'm at Berkeley. Um, you know, but they have uh, specialists in bluegrass. And, and old time music and Turkish music and um, mm. hot hot swing and yeah. you, know, you name it. There's <laughs> someone who specializes in that. So if, if there's a student who wants to study those things, I'm like, you should go study with that person because they're that's the, that's their specialty. Yeah, and you'd be really privileged to work with that that instructor. Um, so yeah, I, I primarily am focusing on jazz um, with a bebop foundation, which is kind of where I got. Um, well, David Baker was my, my yeah. teacher, and that was very much his specialty. Um, so, you know, I've lear having learned from him and, and other teachers over the, um, you know, the course of my uh, you know, college and um, high school years, um, that's become very much a foundation for what I do as well. Right. So when you get these um, violinists who are steeped in the, like, they're classically trained and they read music, like... How do you um, start to introduce them to this concept of, you know, no, not reading and imp improvisation? Do you have like a good first step for a, someone in classical music trying to move to jazz? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting journey, and of course, everybody's different. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you have some students who are really eager to um, to get off the written page and are excited about the idea of sort of um, having a little more freedom um, mm -hmm. with how they express themselves. And then you have students who are absolutely terrified <laughs> about the idea. I mean, yeah. they want to do it. They wouldn't have signed up to be taking lessons if they didn't, but they're just so, you know, that, that idea of perfection and, um, yeah. and uh, using the written page as the, as the ultimate dictator of like what is going to be done and played, um, not necessarily having that or not having it in the same capacity is, is something that just is very terrifying. So I try to, and I think part of what's also intimidating is that they think to improvise is, um, is to like, speak a completely different language. And I mean, there is obviously, it's, it, there is a different language that's involved yeah, with improvisation, yeah, yeah. but it's, you know, a lot of the material that we're playing is very much based in the same theoretical material. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do is to, um, to show them that you know, they already have a lot of the information that they need as far as scales, chords, and those kinds of things go. It's yeah. just looking at it from a different perspective. So I yeah. try to start with from a place of familiarity. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, so it usually involves um, improvising with a, a particular mode, say like the Dorian mode or the Mixolydian mm -hmm. mode, or even the major mode. Um, right. And just, you know, having a vamp or something that, that <laughs> is just something very static um, that gives them the opportunity to take what they know, but just put it through a different filter. So improvising with two or three notes from the major scale. Yeah. And then once they kind of feel a little more comfortable with that, then expanding that to four or five notes. Um, or just looking at the chord tones and, and kind of experimenting with, um, with those structures. And, um, you know, again, just taking that, that bit of knowledge and getting used to experimentation. And then once they have a little more familiarity and, and confidence with that, 
then um, being able to you know, then jump into some material that might not be as common, like experimenting with a mode that maybe isn't as familiar, say the Phrygian mode or mm. the Locrian mode, or um, going to a different scale entirely, like the idea mm. of, of doing a pentatonic, major and minor pentatonic scale or the blues scale. Um, but it's the same paradigm. It's just yeah. then um, putting it into, uh, into use in something that maybe is a little less familiar. But yeah. you want to build up their confidence as much as possible first because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's already scary enough and they're right. already making themselves vulnerable to do something new. So you want to try to give them some confidence um, early on so that yeah. um, when they're encountering new material, they're not always like flooded with this fear of like, oh God, what am I going to do? I don't know how to do this. You want to give yeah. them some tools to, to use throughout the whole yeah. process. Yeah, I would imagine because I played in, like playing in orchestras. So it's such a precision-based experience. Like there's such a high value placed on being precise and getting it right, you know. And you normally in an orchestra you only have like two rehearsals, and then you you know, and it's I find it I find it very stressful. I mean, it can be very gratifying to play in an orchestra, but. Um, it's also very stressful. So I imagine for someone who's in that situation coming into jazz, it's like, you know, the idea of getting it right and like being <laughs> like you have to, you know, how do you, how do you demolish that <laughs> mindset? Well, yeah. I mean, the precision, the precision thing is, is in the jazz music, of course, too. Um, you know, it's, right. I was just doing the, I was down in Florida for a week doing a, um, a recording with the big band and you know, we're spending a lot of time like getting these ensemble sections tight, like really, yeah. like, everything pr like really locked into the groove and to, and making sure, sure the notes are, are you know obviously being performed um, correctly. Um, but I think, you know, there's there's the there are two parts to it. There's like there's there's that precision that comes along with those those ensemble bits, but then there's the the more the expanse that comes when you have like a set of changes that you're improvising over. Um, I mean, there, and they're also like, you know, um, <laughs> there, there are rules and things within those things, like the core yeah. changes too, but you, you learn what those rules are. It's like driving through a, a, you know, driving a course, you know, you learn how to navigate your way through those chord changes and that kind of familiarity allows you then to express yourself within that, along that journey. Mm. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I definitely encourage my students to have patience with themselves as they're mm. kind of making that transition from like being strictly like music um, players, like as far as like just looking at what the music indicates and reading that and just being um, translators. Of yeah. um, trying to encourage them to find the joy in that adrenaline rush that they get when <laughs> suddenly they have this expanse like, and this, this open road that they can go down, right. on, you know, go down on their own. And, um, yeah, there's some fear about it, but man, oh man, when you've got that open road and it's all your, all yours, you know, it's, it's your journey to have, um, it's an exciting one. So it's just showing them the, the joy and the exhilaration that can come from that experience and not necessarily having them get fearful about, you know, what, what they're about to embark on. Right. Right. So early on, so you were studying with David Baker when you were quite little, right? Mm -hmm. Like how old? Like six, seven? Oh, no. <laughs> or was it was, later? No, I was about eight or nine. Eight or nine. Um, well, still very young. Yeah, but you know, it was it was a very cool situation. My my dad, um, Austin Caswell, and um, and David were both hired by the university around the same time. Oh wow! And they became very quick friends. You know, 
uh, they just, yeah, they, their personalities really gelled and, and um, they actually ended up teaching a few courses together. Um, so my dad was a musicologist mm -hmm. um, and David obviously was in charge of the jazz department. And so they taught a music or a jazz history course together, I think, for a little bit. And, you know, they did some research um, uh, projects together. And so they were he was very much a family friend. Like, you know, mm. it wasn't David, like, like David Baker, like professor right. and, you know, this like jazz pedagogy icon. And like, you know, um, he was just David. <laughs> David <Yeah. and> Leda. <laughs> it was a very cool thing. He's just family friends. So, yeah. um, so having lessons or taking lessons from him, you know, just taking lessons and hanging out with a friend or, or you know, and it, it wasn't yeah. this, um, intimidating situation at all. So but both my sister and I would, were, uh, took lessons, started taking lessons with him around the same time. So it was around, um, eight or nine and my sister was, mm -hmm. you know, a little older and, um, yeah, it was awesome. Like we would just would go over to his house, and he had this great studio in their basement. And my mom and like my mom always went to all of my lessons, which was you know, both classical jazz, everything. She was oh, okay. it was amazing having her there because she was learning about it as well. Um, and that you know, she did that so that she would be able to help us practice um, right. at home because you know when Very you're smart. a kid, it's you know it's 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 in a way kind of fun and games, and it goes in one ear and out the other. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So she was kind of there to um, to sort of be that um, assistant, and um, I loved having having her practice with me. It was really it was really awesome. Um, so yeah, he would, a lot of our lessons uh, involved like call and response, and um, him just you know playing a lick to me and um, uh, me playing it back, um, uh, trading fours. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe there would be a new scale learned. Maybe there would be um, a little bit of theory. He didn't do a lot of theory with me because I was very much an ear player, and oh, you know cool. I had I had perfect pitch and um, yeah, like the actual theoretical description of stuff was something that I didn't really necessarily gel with. I was very much an ear-driven player, so he he recognized that right away and really sort of tried to you know, worked with that yeah. as as a way of introducing me to the language. Um, it was later on that um, that I was uh, I had some of those those um, theoretical gaps filled in, like as far as like actually being able to say, okay, this is the chord that I'm improvising over. This is the chord structure where mm. I really had a sense of like ex being able to explain what it was that I was doing. Yeah, but he did a lot of transcription work with me as well. He would assign me, um, uh, you know two or three solos at a time and and would um you give them to me to work on for a month or so and it was i love the transcription process i mean i still do yeah. <laughs> and i i'll do that till i till the day i die it's it's just such an amazing experience of being able to really get into the heads of the players who you're emulating mm -hmm. and for me personally as a violin player david actually had a um he was very um, adamant about this, that the first like four or five years that I studied with him, he didn't want me to transcribe any jazz violinists. And it wasn't oh. because of the fact that he didn't, you know, he, <laughs> it, it wasn't that he didn't uh, love jazz violin. I think right. he was, he was very much wanting me to learn the language, no matter yeah. what source it was coming from, no matter what artist. And I think his worry was that if I only transcribe jazz violinists, then I might be latching on more to some of the idiomaticisms of those mm -hmm. artists rather yeah. than focusing on the language itself. Um, so by transcribing Dizzy and, and 
uh, Charlie Parker and, and Miles, I was learning the different ways that they expressed themselves through that language. And, mm -hmm. um, and I was learning about how to make my instrument sound like a horn. I was learning about how to navigate that language. And some of the language is not easy to translate no. to a violin. I could like, only imagine. God, like, how are, like, <laughs> this is so easy for them. Why can't I, <laughs> I can't be the same thing for the violin? Right. But that's, you know, you learn your instrument because of that experience. And, yeah. um, and you just, you learn how to communicate with other players. And if you're speaking the same language that they've all learned as well, then it just makes the conversation that much more fluid. And um, mm -hmm. I'm really grateful to David for having um, sort of put that paradigm in place because it's, um, when I go to play with horns, I've transcribed so many horn players. Like I, I think about this, this band experience I had last week. Um, I absolutely love playing with a big band. And it's, mm. you know, it gives me that chance to, um, to become a, a trumpet player for a moment if I'm right. doubling their line or, or play, you know, play a sax solely and be basically be, uh, you know, the third alto of sorts, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, I love that. There's, and, you know, there's so many instruments that you wouldn't necessarily think would blend well together, but they do like violin and flugelhorn. Good mm. Lord. That's such a beautiful sound. I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, uh, and violin and tenor, like they just really, yeah, yeah. you know, there's such beautiful, um, yeah, beautiful blending that can happen, and that's. I, I feel like my ability to do that is in, um, is thanks to David for having encouraged me to to, you know, transcribe horn players for the first four or five years that I was I was right. studying. Do you remember the first transcription you did? Oh, I think or one it of was, the first. Yeah, no, I. My, this is when my my uh, foggy memories starts <laughs> to kick in. I think it was Miles' solo on So What. Mm -hmm. um, it was a nice kind of entry-level one. I mean, that's certainly yeah. one of the first ones I usually have my students transcribe. Right. Because if they've never transcribed that experience, I can't just like say, hey, here's a Charlie Parker solo, have fun. Right, They're here's like, Coco, oh go for like, it. <laughs> deer in headlights moment. Um, no, I definitely, I, I think it was a Miles solo first, but... You know, David obviously saw how much I was enjoying transcribing, and so he. Um, I feel like I got into into Dizzy and Bird pretty quickly after thereafter, mm. and again, it wasn't. You know, he didn't necessarily tr transcribe a, or uh, assign a transcription to me based on the tunes we were working on. He was just basically, all right, here's another solo to transcribe. All right, here's another one. It was very <laughs> much just, you know, here's everything and have fun, and right. I, I love that, and mm. I, I do it a little differently. Um, it's not that it's any better. I think it's just a different sure. approach. Um, but I tend to uh, assign transcriptions to my students now based on the tunes that they're working on. So, say if if I've if I've got a student working on "You Stepped Out of a Dream," um, then I will assign them Dexter Gordon's per, uh, version of that, mm. um, and then maybe for some like a, a different twist um, on the same chord progression but a slightly different tune would be like Blue Mitchell's um, solo on "Chicks Tune," which is based on the changes for "You Got mm. uh, You Stepped Out of a Dream." So at least I can hear the contextualization of, mm. of what those players are doing. And then if there's certain material that either of those players um, play that the student really resonates with, then they can you know, lift that material and really practice it, analyze it, and do all that. And then hopefully um, apply some of that learned or that gained knowledge into what they, what they do with their soloing. Yeah. Do you yourself write out the solos and, and or do you have your students write physically write them out yeah it depends um i i mean I, there's yeah i mean there, there are of course multiple ways to do the transcription process i think when i was younger um and i i was being assigned transcriptions i basically only played them 
And again, yeah. I think that was in part because David saw that the theoretical stuff for me was not necessarily a forte. That, um, sure. That he just wanted me to get the language in my fingers and let just soak in my head, my into my brain, and yeah. the theory would come later. Um, with my own students now, I um, maybe initially just to get going with the transcription, the art of transcription, I just have them do the playing and I don't necessarily have them write it out. Once they get more comfortable with the process and once they get more, um, uh, they gain a better understanding of some of the theoretical material they're doing, um, uh, then then I have them write it out because I, I want them to get in there and I want them to understand what it is exactly that the artists are doing so that it's not just a physical exercise, mm. it's actually a comprehensive, like, um, uh, a very conscious understanding of what those players are doing so that it's easier then to apply some of that knowledge into their own soloing. Right. And for your students, do you have them... I'm sorry, I'm going to dive a little deeper into that. <laughs> okay. um, do you have them, like, when you when you want them to write it out, do you have them write it out, like, transcribe it first, write it out first, and then perform it or vice versa or, I, or I prefer to have because of the fact that a lot of those like my students are coming from more of a classical tradition I don't want them to be learning the solo from what they actually wrote out okay I want them to learn the solo first on their instrument using their ears and then once that's done once that's accomplished then to write it out because then they're basically just um, putting into written form what they already know mm-hmm um, but yeah, I don't want them to be learning the solo from the written form because then they're they're missing out on what you know is, is one of the biggest um, things to be gained from uh, the tr transcription process, which is to learn all those um, all the details that make the solo <laughs> work. You know how how players um, connect their notes are they are they uh, separated, articulated, or are they slurred? Um, how are the eighth notes swung? What notes get accents? What notes get what? What? Yeah. What notes are ghosted? What notes get accents? You know, those are all the details that really make the solo come to life. The character, yeah. Exactly. And if they're only reading the notes and the rhythms that they transcribed from the solo, then they're missing all of that. And so when they then when they actually go to play it with the solo, the recording itself, they're technically playing all the right notes and rhythms, but it's it doesn't sound like they're <laughs> unified yeah. with the player. Um, so I want that to be there first, and then when they actually go to write it out, it's a lot easier too because they can just write. They ha they know all the notes, they know all the rhythms, but then they can put in those markings like, oh, they're, they're, yeah, this note was ghosted. These notes, um, you know, kind of fell under one phrase. Um, you know, they can make all those markings with confidence. Uh, it's yeah. something that they can really you know, can speak to with authority. Do they ever use like the amazing slow downer or any of those? I do. do <laughs> Yeah, I, it's funny because I, I, oh, Lordy, this is taking me back. This is aging me now. <laughs> when I was doing transcriptions, initially I was just doing it in real time, which was cool for some solos and not right. so cool for others. <laughs> uh, so when I got to some of those not so cool solos, like, I mean, they were amazing solos, but I couldn't do them in real time, like a Coltrane right. solo. Yeah. Um, I used what they had, a, what they called was a, a, a Marantz machine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the tape deck <laughs> with, um, you know, the you can alter the the speed, which is awesome, but it also altered the pitch, which was not so great. <laughs> and um, so I'm, I remember doing this transcription of a of a stand get solo. It was really, it was a fast one. It was for a, a project that I was doing for David and. Um, you know, like listening to the so 
up. It's like this low, <laughs> grumbly, like underwater sort of thing. And I'm like, gosh darn it, come on. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, Isn't there an easier way to, to, to fix this? Yeah. Um, so when all these apps started to come out, I was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. So yeah, I've, I've been using um, Amazing Slowdowner because yeah, the pitch isn't altered. Um, yeah. You know, I can really like, any gradation, I can like 50%, 75. I mean, it's, it's just awesome what, what you can do and, and the pitch stays constant. And it's, mm. but I, I laugh at myself now because I'm telling my students, I mean, I, I sound like an old lady. I'm just like, back in the day when I was transcribing, <laughs> like <laughs> these yeah. technology these days. But yeah, it is, it's, know, really, right? it's really awesome. And, yeah. um, you know, some of my students just are very basic with the two tools that they use. They just use like, you know, YouTube and, yeah. and they have that automatic, uh, um, Speed. adjustments you can make like 50 yeah. you know 25 50 and 70 or whatever but the, i think the more they get into transcribing the more um that they see the uh the value of having um like, you know the amazing slowdowner or transcribe plus like any of yeah. those those tools that enable them to really kind of um work up their um their uh technical precision and speed so yeah and they'll start with 50 percent, and then they'll nudge it up to like 65 and then 75 and yeah. and it gives them that um, way of marking their progress and tracking their progress. Yeah, I love transcribe because you can really set like the 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 beats and the measures and all that. That's super cool. Um, but I still have problems when it's like like I was working on a Charlie Parker solo, uh, just friends off the yeah. ones with this with strings, and there's so many there's there are gestures that he does that are like nearly impossible to like tra even slowing it down it's like it's just like a schmear kind mm -hmm. of thing you know those are hard those are challenging for me in the transcription yeah. process yeah no for me too um but i still even when those difficult um situations come up uh it's i don't know it's it's just it's a puzzle you know, yeah. figuring it out and you'll you get there eventually um but i was earlier um well so one of the things that i was doing during covid was to um i just was i got back into transcribing i hadn't really done mm -hmm. a whole lot of it um just because of schedule and, and yeah. stuff like that so to actually be able to sit down and say okay i'm going to transcribe the solo and see if i can get it up like one that i've always wanted to transcribe so i the first one i did was um mccoy tyner's solo on um surrey with a fringe on top mm. and you know i mean it was I bit off quite a bit in, in having that be the first one that I got into. Um, but man, oh man, it was fun. You know, I mean, I was definitely using the amazing slowdowner quite a lot on yeah. that. And there were some bits where I was just like, oh my God, how do I do this? I'm not sure. But you figure it out, you know, yeah. it takes a little time. But um, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun to just see it. Yeah, get your hands dirty and, and figure out how to make it, make it fly. Mm -hmm. Did you write that one out? Uh I not. did afterwards. I, I didn't do the whole thing. I think I sketched out bits of it um, that I I found really um, interesting. The The next two solos I did, um, let me see here. I've got the folder here. The next one I did was uh, Lee Konitz's solo on All of Me uh -huh. um, from the album Motion. So that one I did in June. Oh, wait. Actually, you know what? Take that back. I did write out this transcription from McCoy's solo. <laughs> Yeah, because I, I, I did this, the perform, I, well, I videotaped it 
um, or video. I taped it on my, <laughs> taped it. <laughs> I recorded it. Right. There we go. All this different terminology. Yes. I recorded it on I my phone and put it on, on, um, you know, social media. And, um, one of my friends reached out to me and said, Hey, do you, did you write out that transcription? If you did, I would love to see it. And I said, I didn't, but I should. So, so it's here. Oh, nice. And then I did, um, yeah, I did Lee Konitz's solo on, uh yeah on all of me which is here i do everything by hand because i don't know how to use finale i'm old-fashioned so my penmanship is awesome <laughs> i bet <laughs> and then the last one i did was um coltrane solo on on a blues to you so that's oh, here wow. and there are a lot of notes one instrument more challenging to, to translate from to violin than the other? Um, like trumpet per se? Or? Trumpet, no. A trumpet is actually, um, yeah, that trumpet isn't so bad. I think it actually is, is tenor mm. um, and alto too. I mean, like, because they just, they cram so many notes in there. <laughs> and, and the same thing could be said about piano too. Um, because yeah. the dexterity is just like, it's so fluid with those master players. And, um, yeah, I, I think some of the, um, yeah, there's some, there's some cold, you know, definitely some Coltrane solos that, and Chris Potter solos that are just like, mm. oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, no kidding. But I, that's, again, that's part of the challenge that I, I like to, um, I like to take on. Yeah. And, I, and, you know, I, there's so much, infinite amounts of material to learn from those solos. And um, and it's also a technical challenge too, of course, to be able to execute those lines as fluidly and as easily as they do. I mean, they make it effortless. They make mm. it look, look effortless. Right. And um, you know, it's part of the. Um, you know, I think about that too. With um, you know, think about um, composers like Mozart and and violin soloists who are able to make Mozart sound so easy. Mm. You know, they make it look just you know as though effortless yeah it's just an effortless task but then when you actually go learn those mozart concertos you're just like oh my god this is really <laughs> a lot more difficult than i thought <laughs> um so right. it's that's the you know the the art with any of any player whether it be mozart um you know prokofiev sibelius miles coltrane i mean it's, they just mm -hmm. they make it look easy right. and um and that's Part of what we love is just seeing that virtuosity and dis on display and and so much heart being woven into that as well yeah so it's just the whole package and then does that is that the end of the story so you you write it out and then it goes on the bookshelf or is it like now you're now this becomes f like food for your 
your practice. Oh yeah. Well, once you learn a solo, you can't unlearn it. <laughs> you know, it's 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 always a part of you. I mean, it's That's funny. True. I go back and and play through some of the old solos that I learned under David's um, instruction, and they're still there. They're a little rusty, but they're still there. Um, and yeah, those solos are going to be a part of who you know who I am for the rest of my life. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's again why I I definitely encourage my students to learn things by ear. I think you retain that information much more, much more, much deep, much more deeply when yeah. you do it by ear than if you do it by rote. So if you learn by yeah. ear, it's yours forever. <laughs> and um, you know, and there's once when you have that sort of personal connection with something, um, it's going to find its way into your music making no matter what, whether you're conscious of it or not. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Um, so you, you started really young on violin. Was it your, did your mother pick violin for you or she was like, you know, choose a string instrument? I, I think I remember a story about you going to the music store and, and you got the violin. How, or was, was she guiding you towards that? <laughs> no, actually it was kind of funny how the whole thing came about. She had, um, so she was teaching, um, She's a, a teaching assistant for the uh, theory department and um, at IU. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of her students was a violinist. Um, and this, this particular student was uh, assisting in, the, um, in, in IU's pre-college uh, violin program. And um, so uh, the student, her name is Rebecca. Mm -hmm. um, she came, to, she approached my mom. She knew I was, you know, kind of of the age when a lot of string players, or, you know, people might start playing violin. I was about five years right. old. And my mom was definitely interested in, in you know, introducing me to an instrument, um, but she wasn't quite sure what instrument. It's, I mean, my mom was an organist and a pianist. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that was a, uh, an easy potential choice. Sure. Uh, but the student, Rebecca, uh, Rebecca Henry, she, um, she said, oh, no, she has to give her, <laughs> give her to me, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> she said, we have an amazing pre-college string program here. And, you know, it's, uh, I think, she, you know, it would be really an amazing opportunity for her to, um, you know, to just try out something new something different mm. and my mom was a little hesitant about it because I, I think <laughs> she told me that she um at least with beginning violinists she she thought of the violin like beginner violinists as playing squawk boxes you know uh, like just like these really squeaky eh, scratchy eh, 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 <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah just not something you want to be listening to it's like more like you know right. nails on a, a chalkboard <laughs> Um, but you know, Rebecca was very convincing and, and my mom signed on, she's like, all right, we'll give it a shot. And, um, so yeah, so that was where that story you, you said you'd heard came into play. Um, uh, just my memory of driving to the, to the violin, Ola Dahl's violin shop and, um, uh, you know, getting, picking up the rental, like the little teeny, teeny fiddle <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Mm bringing it home and and um and taking it out of the case and yeah, kind of imitating some of the photos i'd seen of, of players with yeah. the instrument in their hand so kind of like you know probably like doing a bit of a claw hand <laughs> handhold but i yeah pitching or i don't know if i pitched or if i played like, with the bow but i'm playing like two a's and two e's and getting really excited because i was like oh my god that's the first four notes of twinkle twinkle <laughs> and then immediately getting frustrated that I couldn't figure out how to make the next notes happen. The rest so, of it. Yeah. So I was hooked from, you know, from the get go. Mm. 
And you did, that was Suzuki that you did, you went through. Right. So the program um, was, I'm pretty sure it was started by, um, like the one, the program at IU was started by Mimitz Feig. And she is still uh, the director of that pre-college program. She's an incredible teacher. Um, so I, my first teacher was Rebecca Henry, who was one mm-hmm. of um, Mimi's assistants. And I studied with Rebecca for the first uh, year and a half or so, and then I s- switched over to Mimi. And I was with Mimi for about five or six years. Um, and then I switched to Joseph Gingold um, uh, when I was about 12 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Mimi's program, it's, it is a Suzuki-based program, but she also is bringing in... <coughs> excuse me. Mm-hmm. She's also bringing in other pedagogical methods. One of one of them being uh, Paul Roland um, was also a very influential figure mm-hmm. in um, uh, in violin instruction, and um, mm-hmm. so her uh, method was kind of a, a hybrid of these different uh, the Paul Roland method and um, uh, the Suzuki method. So mm-hmm. it was really a really a fantastic program. And then also because of the fact that my mom was a music historian and was an amazing. Um, pianist and was very curious about you know a lot of different music and ways in, in which you know, things that my sister and I could be exposed to she would supplement um what uh Mimi was teaching us so she would find these really cool little broke pieces you know like she would go over to the music library at IU which is an incredible music library right she would go over and then kind of get lost in the stacks of music and would be looking for really cool pieces that my sister and I could learn so Rachel was learning my sister was learning cello Mm-hmm. And um, and she would find these yeah obscure solo pieces or obscure like little piano trios that we could play together, um, just sort of as a way to um, yeah just explore what what all was 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 out there. And then it was it was soon after like I started I was playing for about three years, and then um, mom signed me up for um, baroque violin lessons to supplement the the um, the lessons I was getting from Mimi. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was doing some Baroque instruction, with, and then not long after, I was then signing on to take uh, jazz lessons as well. So I was taking three different sets of lessons, <laughs> but it was so much fun. I mean, it wasn't it yeah. wasn't demanded, of course. I mean, she wasn't like you're taking these lessons. I mean, this was right. something I I felt m- the most myself and the most free mm-hmm. when I had that fiddle in my hand. I was a shy kid, and yeah. um, music was the one place where I really just felt myself, felt mm-hmm. like myself. So these lessons were, it was, it was a blast. It was fun. I was able to see the things that were different about the styles, what was similar, you know, the idea of Baroque, uh, there being Baroque, um, well, with Baroque music, there being improvisation that's mm-hmm. central to the performance practice and seeing that that was something with jazz as well. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so yeah, it was, a, uh, it was fun for me. And I, mm-hmm. I just felt, I felt like I was um, in tune with, um, the world in a way, I guess when I was, when I was doing those things. So, right. I, you know, as I got older that I, I think, um, I found that certain, you know, certain style of music, certain styles of music were resonating a little bit more. So, um, you know, I, I focused a little bit more on classical performance and on jazz, um, and a little less on, on Baroque. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then by the time I finished my undergrad, I was really feeling, um, feeling pulled and, and connected with, uh, jazz material. And kind of, you know, so I mean, so where I've ended up now is like it's been very, very organic, um, mm-hmm. you know, just a, a process of self-discovery. You know, nothing yeah. was no pressure. It was it was really a matter of me just having these opportunities, which I'm super grateful to have had. And um, yeah, and from that, just sort of figure out my my journey along the way. So, right, was 
you talked about you felt most the most yourself being you know playing the music did you find did you have a nice community of of like other musicians or kids your age that you were able to connect with oh definitely yeah i mean indiana university has one of the world's best music schools which right. is kind of weird to think about because it's located in the middle of you know indiana yeah. cornfields Bloomington. Yeah. <laughs> you know it's like a this amazing little like um college oasis college town um, you know, you drive 15 minutes outside of town, you're like surrounded by cows and cornfields. So it's like <laughs> this crazy sort of, um, uh, you know, um, it's an amazing school, just an amazing yeah. school. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the faculty, the, the, the arts in Bloomington is really, it's like a mini New York in a way, mm. you know, because of the quality of faculty members and the, and the students that those teachers attract. Uh, so it's a really a phenomenal art scene there. Um, mm. So yeah, there were other students who were taking like the, the there was a pre college piano um, piano academy. There was a record like pre college recorder academy. You know these different um, mm-hmm. different situations. Like you know, of course, it wasn't just the music arts. It was also like uh, dance. You know, there was pre college dance program. So all of these um, different opportunities that were available to the kids in the area, which um, was just amazing. So yeah, there was. Um, you know, not only do, were there kids my, my age who were participating in these programs, but then we had these mentors through the students who were at IU and then, of course, the professors there as well, um, mm. who were really able to kind of give us the, um, the encouragement and support that we would need as we were kind of, um, you know, learning about this music. And, um, and of course, I mean, that social element um, uh, of the music is essential, especially, of course, with, with jazz music, you, you need to be interacting with your peers <laughs> and, um, for that music to be learned and, and practiced. And I, the, um, the high school that I went to, Bloomington North High School, had an amazing uh, band director there named Janice Stockhouse. Um, mm-hmm. And she, uh, yeah, she had a fantastic you know, band program in general. Um, with, you know, her symphonic and um, uh, symphonic bands were and marching bands were winning competitions left and right in the state. But she also had a killer jazz program. Mm. So she had like I think three bands, three jazz bands, wow. and and she was one of those instructors who, um, you know, my sister and I both like Rachel played piano as well. So she ended up playing piano in the jazz band when she was at North. Um, but I, you know, the only instrument I could really play was violin. <laughs> And, you know, she knew I was taking lessons from David and, and um, that I was really working at, at the music. And so when, when um, we approached her about, you know, the possibility of violin being in the jazz band, she was like, oh, yeah, come on. You're, of course, you know, would I say no? And that was, you know, that was not, that, that situation was not typical. Right. Um, you know, I, I would hear stories from other string players who were in my age group who were, wanting to play jazz or wanting to play in the jazz band and their instructors were like no that's not something that's allowed or like you know there's no violins in jazz band or you know they they could see it's like oh well you have a violin player in there that means we have to write up parts or you know and that might just be something they don't have time or um the resources to do um janice was amazing and she she made the time and she wrote out you know she wrote out parts for me and it would be a um I have a very like vivid memory of her handwriting, like it's you know, and, and it was beautiful handwriting. And she would make these parts up for me that was like you know, it'd be a little a buffet of sorts of, of of parts. So like one section I'd be with the horns and like with the with the trumpets, and another section mm-hmm. I'd be with, um, I'd be doubling the line in the alto you know alto player's book, and it was just that sort of opportunity to really learn how to blend 
um, it was an it, it was kind of like what I was talking about earlier with learning how to blend with this uh, horn in the transcriptions that I would do. Yeah. And this was an, an, enabling me to build on that skill um, by uh, blending with instruments in real time yeah. and doing that as part of a big band setting. So that was, you know, that, that situation in high school was in, just totally an, an invaluable one um, on a social and a musical level. Mm -hmm. So then when I went on to college and was doing a double degree, um, I, you know, I was in, J in David Baker's jazz band um, those four years. Wow. And the skill sets that I learned from being in Janice's ensembles in high school prepared me for what it would be to be a horn, essentially, in, in David's jazz bands. Um, so it was a really, um, yeah, some really formative experiences through that yeah. time. Where I'm just curious, like where did you sit in the ensemble? Like, were you with the horn? Where were you with the rhythm section? Were you with the horns? Or? I was smack dab in between, <laughs> <laughs> so I usually sat. Well, it, it depended. Um, there were a couple years in David's band. I think the first couple years where I sat on, like, if you're looking, <clears throat> if you're looking at the jazz band mm -hmm. head on, you know, the rhythm section would be. <clears throat> got a frog in my throat. That's the rhythm right. section would be on the left. Mm -hmm. And the, um, I don't know if it's going to look the same on your camera here, but yeah, the rhythm section would be on the left and the band would be on the right. So I would yeah. be in the far right. Yeah. Um, but then um, I think the last three years I was in the band, I was actually like next to the guitar. So I was like in between the horns and the rhythm section, which I loved because I was like right in the middle of it all and could really sort of um, better hear the instruments that I was blending with because it wasn't always the horns I was playing with. I would be sometimes doubling a, a, a guitar line or a piano line. Sure. Yeah. So that put me in a better physical position to um, be able to do what I needed to do as, as a um, yeah, as a as a band member. Right. Wow. That must have been amazing to play in those big bands. It was fun. Yeah, it was a blast. So, who were your like? <clears throat> who were your violin role models or, or heroes when you were growing up? I mean, I imagine like Stefan Grappelli or. Django, like, you know, Stefan on Django, or like, um, maybe, uh, shoot, uh, Jean Luponti. Jean Luponti, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I should know that because I just interviewed Steve Smith and oh, nice. he toured with Jean Luponti. Yeah, yeah. Were those, were they, um, role models for you or influences for you? They were. Um, maybe not as much for, um, as it, they may have been for other violin players. I and mean, because again, going back to what David had um, sort of uh, the, the, the path that David had set as far as like who I would transcribe first. So, yeah. you know, and oftentimes those players who you're introduced to are the ones that are like have the most lasting impact. So for me, those, those horn players I was initially introduced to from the bebop era were sort of like the big um, inspirations for me. But of course, I mean, like, um, you know, getting, you know, hearing the music of Stefan Grappelli and Jean-Luc Ponty, and especially, I think Jean-Luc especially re resonated with me mm -hmm. because of the way that he approached his instrument. Like, of course, he had the conservatory training that he received, but then he also had done a lot, a lot of the, the same sort of horn transcribing that I was really into, so you could hear a lot of that horn influence in his playing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the violinists who actually had more impact on me were the ones who I got to know personally. Um, so uh, one of my big mentors was um, uh, was John Blake Jr. Okay. Um, he, I, I, where did I first meet him? I think I met him at the Jazz in July workshop in, um, I think that year it was held in 
Amherst, Massachusetts. It was a two-week mm-hmm. workshop, jazz workshop, and he was one of the faculty members there. So it was held at UMass. Um, and, um, yeah, he was, he was teaching there, and I, I went to that camp with the idea of, like, meeting, meeting this guy and having a chance mm-hmm. to, to study with him. And he really ended up becoming like a, a second father to me. Oh, um, wow. I, you know, I, I got to know him over the course of the years, and he was just such a, a caring, caring guy, and just um, so supportive, and um, yeah, just a mentor. And um, mm. you know, I, I came. Well, so I ended up teaching them with him at di- different workshops. You know, over the course of the years, we we taught at Mark O'Connor's camps together, and. Um, and you know, do some, we did a few performances, like at Gen, or the, actually at that time it was called the IAJE, International Association right. for Jazz Education. We did a, a performance together. Um, and yeah, he, just, he became a, a dear friend and um, uh, yeah, like I said, another father, a second father to me. Mm-hmm. And he was especially important to me. Um, I came to Manhattan School to do my, um, my master's degree in 2004, and he was teaching. At, oh, at MSM, awesome. so this was a chance for me to really, like, not just a two-week workshop, but to actually like really study with John for um, for a couple of years, which was mm-hmm. just an incredible uh, opportunity. And on a personal note, it was um, I don't think I could have chosen a better teacher to work with because at that time too, my father was really was really sick with cancer, mm. and um, I was able to. You know, he knew that, and he understood that that has, you know, there's a lot of yeah. stuff happening <laughs> during that time. And there are going to be weeks when I'm able to be really efficient with my practicing, and there are going to be weeks where I, I just couldn't because there yeah. were stresses uh, at home that I was, you know, dealing with. So, mm-hmm. knowing um, that he was there to support me through that, um, that that period in my life was was really um, was really important. He passed away. Oh. God, it must be close to ten, oh, ten years now. Mm. Um, but he's he is sorely missed. Just yeah. he was such a his son Jonathan Blake, um, yeah. just fantastic drummer. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, is a really is a good friend. I've, I've known Jonathan since uh, we were in high school, and um, you know, see his success and see how he's just um, he's just found his voice and his path has been really really amazing. But I see a lot of John in um, in Jonathan and. Mm. Uh, it's a really beautiful thing to, to see. Do you but see, so, have you, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, another violinist who has also has been a very influential um, uh, person in my life has been Regina Carter. Mm, um, I, yeah. We've had a chance to work together. Um, uh, we did a, uh, we did a show, she was her, part of her, she had a, a guest um, artist series. Like she was like, you know, they gave her a residency at, at SF Jazz. And so one of the concerts that she opted to do was a violin summit um, with me and Jenny Scheinman. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then but there was another kind of violin summit that we did that John Clayton put together with me and Regina and Aaron Weinstein. Mm. And, um, and now Regina and I are, are colleagues at Manhattan School of Music. And um, so it's been a nice sort of gradual evolution for us to be working together both as, um, as performers and as uh, teachers. So it's been really, really awesome. And she's yeah. just such an incredible violinist. Yes, yeah, she's beautiful. Uh, yeah, She's just an amazing fiddle player. And, and John, too. And the, and the one, the cool thing is that actually John is our link because Regina studied with John as well. Oh. And so we both share that, um, that love and, and um, yeah. you know, uh, and, and um, admiration for uh, John's um, pedagogical and musical artistry. It's really very, very cool. Right. Did John transform in any way 
your approach or your practice or what what, what were those what were those uh, lessons like? They were very cool. You know, um, he he too was very heavily influenced by by horn players, and mm. I think at the time I was very much focused on. I think it was like some of the classical holdover. I think in a way I was very concerned with perfection and just mm -hmm. cleanliness as like far as like, you know, I don't know. But there, he was encouraging me to, to like lean in a little more and, and get a little bit more of that aggression and the grit and um, owning it, mm. you know, having a little bit more confidence in, in my voice. And, um, you know, not being like, because I, I think sometimes I think just because I was, sh I was still pretty shy and, um, and I was, you know, a very aware that I was a fiddle player, you know, in a, in a very horn oriented world. And, yeah. um, he was, he definitely gave me that nudge saying, you know, good. I'm glad you're a violin player and you, you know, you have something to say, so say it and don't, don't apologize for it. Don't, um, feel that you have to, you know, preface anything, you know, just get out there and do what you, what you, or say what you want to say. Mm -hmm. and say it with confidence and I think that was something that definitely was very influential um, for me at that time yeah and have you played with have you and his son played together Jonathan Blake have you oh, guys yeah. ever yeah performed? no we've, we definitely performed together he actually um, the most recent opportunity we had to play together was uh, on my sister's album her most recent album um, uh, came out a year no two, two years ago or so but the rhythm section was phenomenal it was Jonathan Blake on drums, uh, Linda O, Linda Mahan O on oh, bass, yeah, uh, bass, and Fabian Almazan on piano. And I've, I've known all of those folks for years. I, Fabian and I were in school together, and I played on his first uh, Rhizome album. Mm. Um, Linda, I've known for a long time. We we just miss each other at Manhattan School, but um, you know our paths have crossed several times. And I'm on her uh, most recent album, uh, Adventurin. And um, so yeah, to to bring these worlds together um, and to have a chance to play with with Jonathan and Linda and Fabian on uh, on my sister's project was really cool. And yeah, I've, the other the other player was uh, he was also uh, producing the album was uh, Dave Stryker on guitar. So it was a really um, awesome crew of people uh, that that worked together. I'm actually recording with Dave um, next week. Mm. Um, he's got a new album he's putting together. It's double quartet, so it's. Um, uh, John Patitucci on bass, um, Julian Shore who on piano. He's also doing all the arrangements, and um, and then Brian Blade on drums, mm -hmm. and then it's going to be with string quartet. So uh, it'll be me um, and Monica Davis on violin, um, uh, Benny von Goodsight on viola. He's a member of the Turtle Island String Quartet, and um, and Marika Hughes on cello. Yeah. So, so the string quartet, quartet will record the week after the rhythm section, but I'm actually going to be playing a couple solos uh, on the album, so I'll be recording with the rhythm section um, next week. So I'm excited about that. That's exciting. <laughs> John Patitucci is going to be here in Ashland, of all places. Oh, fantastic. There's a string quartet. I can't remember the name now. Yeah. There's a string quartet coming through, and he's, he's, he's going to be playing with them at a Oh, minor. great. At a winery here, they're trying to reinvent the chamber music series here, you know, having everything outside oh, right awesome. now. But uh, uh, I wanted to ask about because I'm a sax player and I saw that you studied with Dick Oates. I'm mm -hmm. curious what that was, what that experience was like. That was really amazing too. I mean, I <laughs> I've been really lucky with the with the teachers I've had. 
mm-hmm. uh, over the years. Um, I think I, I just worked with um, with the goats for a semester. Okay. Because um, one of the things that at Manhattan School, as a master's student, they give you the option to um, to split your lessons um, among you know, different faculty members. So mm-hmm. I worked with. I opted to do that each semester. So I think the first semester I worked with, I split my lessons between um, John Blake and Sylvia Rosenberg, who's a classical violin player. Mm-hmm. Um, next semester, I think it was between uh, between John and um, DeGoats. And then I think the next year, I split lessons between John and um, Michael Patterson, who is a, a composer and arranger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to go back and look at my records. I don't totally sure. remember how that division worked. Um, so it, my time with with uh, with Dickos was was short, but um, yeah, I I really, you know, I, I wanted to get a little bit more of that horn approach back into my playing, and was sort of because it wasn't I was. Um, I don't know. I, I I loved his sound. I loved his the soul that he would bring to, uh, or that he brings to what he does. And so I really wanted to kind of tap into that and sort of that more of the musical uh, mm-hmm. perspective on things. And so really kind of being able to to um, work more on some of the more musical musicality elements of my playing was was something that I really enjoyed uh, enjoyed studying with him. Yeah, I've heard lots of great things about him as a teacher. Yeah, that's really cool. Actually, I realized that I actually saw you perform probably 2010-2011 in Minneapolis with Esperanza Spaulding. Yeah. And um, <coughs> I mean that concert was amazing. The the Chamber Music Society. Um, yeah. Blew me away. How did how did that opportunity come your way to play with her? 
Oh, and that's talk about time flying by. That was <laughs> 10 years ago. Now that we, so I was touring with her for about two years uh, mm-hmm. on that project. Um, so I received an email from Jeff Levinson. And um, Je- I'd gotten to know Jeff through Rosanna Vitro, um, mm-hmm. a great jazz singer that I have been working with on and off for the last uh, 12 years or so. And um, so I, you know, he, Jeff was a good friend of Rosanna's. And, and um, so uh, Jeff reached out to me and he said, hey, there's a very cool opportunity <laughs> um, that I think you should seriously consider if you're interested. And I was like, okay, sure, what? So um, Esperanza had already recorded the album um, and they were, you know, they were getting ready for the release and the touring. Mm-hmm. And the um, the cellist and the violinist who were on the album couldn't do the first batch of, of concerts, um, mm-hmm. you know, for the yeah for the release. And um, so the 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 gentleman who did the arrangements on the album in in, in conjunction with Esperanza was uh, was Gil Goldstein, mm-hmm. and Gil is good friends with Jeff, and so Gil <laughs> said, hey, we need a you know, we need a violin player who can do these charts. Um, you know, there's not improvising necessarily, but it would be really great if there's sort of like sensitive to it and these can have an understanding of the language. And, and Jeff was like, I think I might have someone in mind for you. <laughs> and so Jeff reached out to me and he said, Hey, I think you should do this. If you can make your, like, and this was a month before the concert began. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, he's like, if you can make this work, he said, I don't think you'll regret it. <laughs> I was like, okay. So, you know, I had to cancel a few things and I, which I felt really bad about because it's not necessarily like, you know, that's not the way I operate. I usually like when I commit to a gig, I commit to a gig and, um, you know, having to, to call up somebody and say, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> can you like, you know, I, I hate to do this, but I, I really, like, this is an opportunity that I really should, I can't pass up mm-hmm. and um and thankfully everybody was super cool about it and totally understood and um so what turned out like what began as a basically like a five or ten show um, agreement turned into two years of of touring um wow. we, it wasn't it was pretty close to full time like that was sort of our, our priority mm-hmm. um like we weren't I, I don't, they usually got us dates pretty far in advance that we were able to kind of work our schedules around it um, but we also knew that those schedules could change and it might grow and and certainly after she won the best new artist grammy um yeah you know that oh my god that was a that was an experience i was having what a shock a, for everybody well, it was, right it was really crazy i mean like she was definitely blowing up like you know she, her like the albums that she released prior to this one were were definitely putting her on the map like someone to watch um yeah with this particular album, you know, it like I remember the, like every show we played was like sold out. Like it was from the get go. Like, it was packed, and yeah. um, and then when <laughs> so we were like the Grammys were the night before we um, were leaving for a week in Tokyo to play mm-hmm. the Blue Note, and <clears throat> I was to get I was having a burger and fries with a friend of mine in Brooklyn. Uh, he was actually the, the he became the tour drummer. Our initial tour drummer was Terry Lynn Carrington, and then um, she, so she did the first few shows, and then for the the rest of them, um, Richie Barche was our drummer. Um, so I was having a burger prize with Richie and a couple of their friends, and um, we weren't watching the Grammys. We were just you know having a good hang, right, and all of a sudden, Richie and my phone, like our phones, just started buzzing like crazy, like just <laughs> rattling off the table, and we're like, what the. 
and we pick it up and it says she won she won we're like oh you know like what had one best new artist grammy um against justin bieber right (laughs) everybody was just flipping out and it was just like oh my god this is so exciting um and then the next day we left for japan and after like that was sort of like the first instance where we really got to see um like what sort of what happens when you get a little more famous Sure. You know, and it was never anything too crazy. Like, you yeah. know, with a couple of the shows that we did in, um, like the late night shows, we did Jimmy Kimmel and we did mm-hmm. Leno and Letterman. Um, the, you know, there were some paparazzi people who would like, come, like when we were leaving, they'd like be snapping photos, and, but it was never anything too crazy. Um, yeah. but you know, for a jazz musician to have that happen, it was just like, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> you know? Um, but it was really quite something to see how that like, sudden launch um post grammy um can affect things like for her she was rock solid but you could see how like suddenly she was there was much more being asked asked of her yeah yeah, um, but she, went up. yeah but she handled it with so much grace um mm. and you know the thing about esperanza she knows who she is and she she knows what she is able to give and when you know she needs to step back and i i i she handled all of that so beautifully Mm. Um, and I, you know, I, I, she's always rock solid. Like she just, she's, um, she's an amazing, amazing soul. Mm. And I, um, I have so much admiration for who she is as a person, as an artist, as a, uh, a citizen, as a a person really very consciously engaged in everything she does. And she doesn't do it if she doesn't believe in it or Mm. doesn't feel there's a purpose in her being there to do it. And, whether it's on stage or whether it's, um, you know, in the, with some sort of political activism or whatever, she knows who she is and what she wants to say. And um, she handled, like I said, she handled all of it. Because she had Bieber fans who were, you know, getting, you know, just... Nasty. And, yeah. yeah. You know, what, what you'd expect <laughs> with something like that. Um, Come on, people. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, it, it all, things all settled down. It was fine. Yeah, but it yeah. was, um, I think she just, um, she's always handled that so, so well. So. What but were, that whole group became such a family. Oh. You know, from all those experiences, um, like, you know, uh, yeah, we've, we still get together regularly for, for meals and holidays mm. and, and everything. I mean, those, the people in my band, in that band are, are my musical family and, um, you know, I love them to bits. So well, that's awesome. What a great experience to, and bonding. Yeah. How cool. What were, what were rehearsals like with her? Long. <laughs> <laughs> long but so like, it, it wasn't <clears throat> they weren't long as far as like oh uh, like, when is this rehearsal going to be over right yeah you know they didn't seem long at all I mean it, it was it, they were intense mm-hmm. because she was really like she you know she was really wanting to experiment and really get to the core of what she wanted to be hearing and or just to allow us to be able to get there ourselves too um, it was a very organic thing but it was but the record, the rehearsals were always super productive and I remember we did a week's worth of preparatory shows before our first like our first show was in Paramus New Jersey and we did about a week of shows out there at the at, a week of rehearsals um out at the at the venue and they were you know day-long rehearsals mm-hmm. but there was a lot I mean there was a lot of music to get to yeah. and she really you know <clears throat> what I loved about her process was that you know a lot of players would have been like, oh, yeah, the arrangements are done. We, we wrote them for the session. That's it. Just read the ink. <laughs> Not the way she rolls. 
like the the arrangements went through so many changes and like just sort of um, based on the, the venue, based on who we were as a band. Mm-hmm. So she's always, things were always evolving, always changing. And I think, and then she, you know, her excellence, like her striving for excellence, it was something that she didn't have to demand of us. It was something that just, like she led by example, essentially. Yeah. So her really always looking for ways to, explore and recreate and you know that that sort of evolution was something that we you know soaked soaked up from her so Mm. yeah the rehearsals were long but they never seemed it and we always felt like we were better for it having gone through those and and you know every show we did from the first in Paramus to the last I think we did in Jersey (laughs) (laughs) starts and ends in Jersey um but we actually no our last show was we did a uh, it was a, like a uh, kind of like a, a, its own show or a series of shows. We played the Village Vanguard for about a week, um, but that was kind of separate from the two, two years of touring that we had done. Right. But you know, we every show was its own thing. Like it never felt monotonous. It never felt like you know um, we were playing the same show. You know, we every show was different, and every show we felt like we were, you know, we were always reaching for something more than we had the, the show before. And I think that's in a way why we became such a tight group because we really like we noticed the uniqueness of the situation and were you know just harnessing it and, and cherishing it as much as we possibly could during that time. Right. Did the set <clears throat> was it the same set every night or did she change the programming? There were a few changes here. I mean, depending on whether the venue wanted us to do one long show or two sets. Um, uh, so. You know, and, yeah. and some, with some places we did, like, there were actually two, like, you know, 60 to 70 minute sets versus, like, right. two 40, 45 minute sort of sets. Um, so it depended on what the pro, what the, what the vendors or, uh, yeah, what the, the venues wanted. Um, mm-hmm. But sometimes, yeah, sometimes she would experiment with the sequencing of the repertoire, but not very often. I think we really found that there was a good flow to um, what we kind of set during the shows in, in Paramus. Mm-hmm. Um, a few little changes here and there. Um, a couple of th- songs that kind of got taken out. Um, but really, it was kind of like the actual s- programmatic structure stayed pretty pretty much the same. We added um, a, f- a couple pieces that we might play as a clo- uh, as a um, encore. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, but no, the, the basic structure stayed the same. It was just the ways in which we played it. Um, things that we liked, things that we didn't like, or that she liked and didn't like, and um, you know, it just kind of, yeah. There were always, as I said, was kind of things were kind of always evolving, which I, I just loved with that. That's really cool, really cool. Um, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> so, tell me about that. Like, where, when was, when was that? Oof. Uh, 2016. Okay. And how did how did you get that gig? <laughs> oh lordy, well, um, I was on my way to San Francisco to play at SF Jazz with David Krakauer, and um, I was part of his band, The Big Picture. Um, mm-hmm. And we were in the airport. It's funny how I, like I have a terrible <laughs> memory, but there are certain things that I remember sure. really vividly, and this was another one of them. So I was in the airport. And I got a text from Sam Bartfeld, who is one of the, the violinist that has uh, worked with Bruce 
several times over the years. I think he's on, on at least a couple of his albums. And um, Sam reached out to me and he said, hey, uh, are you available on such and such dates? Um, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a, you know, playing with, it's a thing playing with Bruce Springsteen. I was like, ah! <laughs> I was like, I did that little, like, you know, inner scream because I'm in the right. airport, so I got to be, you know, on good behavior here. But, um, but when, yeah, when I saw it with Springsteen, I was like, oh, man. Okay. And I was about to board the, the flight. And, um, you know, of course, then I wouldn't have, at that time, I guess, I don't know if I could have internet access. Right. Or whatever. So I'm just like freaking, I'm like, oh, man. And, so, and the gig was actually coming up, like, in three days. Like, it was oh my like, a really quick because I think it was a last-minute decision on Bruce's part to bring the strings on strings. board, kind of like as a surprise gift to his fans, um, mm. like a string octet. Um, so, and I was like, I was actually scheduled to be flying back to New York on the day that I would need to be um, in, like, available for rehearsals in the show. So I'm, so I, I talked with Krakauer, and I was like, all right, there's a really amazing opportunity that I've got here. I was like. There's an a, an overnight a red eye flight after our show, SF <laughs> Jazz. Is it okay if I take that flight um, and I you know change make the change? I'll pay for the difference in you know obviously in, in yeah. getting here. Um, but are you cool with me? As soon as our concert is over with SF Jazz, that I head to the airport and head right back away. to New York for this for this <laughs> concert because I said it's it's with the boss. And right. he was like, oh, yeah, no, go, do it. <laughs> you got to do it, which was awesome. He would, I, was, I was really very grateful to, I mean, because I loved, I mean, Krakauer, that tour was an amazing one, too. Um, mm. And I, I, of course, I was not going to, like, you know, jump ship on, on Krakauer's show. Sure. But I wanted, to, if I could do the, the Bruce thing, if there was a possibility to do it, then try to make that happen. Yeah, and and yeah. David was wonderfully flexible about it. And it was, it was awesome. So I did, I did David's show. It was super fun. And then I went right to the airport and, um, and uh, had a chance to play. We did, I think we ended up doing eight or nine dates with, with Bruce and the band. They were all on the East Coast. It was like yeah. um, Jersey and I think we had a couple in D.C. and a couple in Philly and um, in New York. It was, you know, it's the boss. Like, it's, what do you, it's just, it was awesome. It was, you know, we played a I couple bet. pieces with him and. Um, to feel that we were like, we played, um, the opening number on that tour. And, oh, wow. um, so to be like, you, you know, so we come up on stage and you have like this sold out stadium of people, like, they start screaming because they realize the show is about to start. So it's just like this deafening, like, ah, <laughs> and, um, and then of course, you know, each band member comes up like it one by one and and everyone's freaking out and it's just you know i mean and and bruce's fans are so loyal they adore mm. him and he and, it was, and he put on such an amazing show we would stay for the whole thing mm -hmm. these shows were epically long they were like three or four hours long you know wow. he never took a break i mean he just kept going and kept and he got more amped up with each you know each passing hour it was amazing so the fans definitely got you know got an amazing um, show and and uh, and Bruce is just such a sweet guy like um, we had a chance to rehearse one of the songs with him in his dressing room and and he was just so kind and appreciative mm. of us being there and um, 
you know, I'm, I'm just like shaking in my boots and then there, I'm just like, oh my God, I'm like six feet away from Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> trying to keep my cool. Um, but right. you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm very grateful to Sam for having, um, you know, reached out to me about playing that gig. Um, Cause that, that experience of meeting Bruce and really, you know, and everybody that we met on that tour, like was, they've all been with Bruce for decades. Yeah. You know, it's a really beautifully run tour and, um, yeah, good people, like just mm. really kind people who are very super friendly and and willing to help out if you if you need it. You know, it's just a um, it was really beautiful to see that sort of um, a tour run in that way. And um, yeah. and they all are they just they love Bruce, you know. And and um, they, he's yeah he's just very appreciative of, of all that every person you know in that is that's part of his touring family all the time of day and, and energy that they get and that that definitely reflected through everything he did so yeah i can imagine that would be overwhelming to s come up on stage and see a, an arena full of people just like <laughs> going berserk and yeah. you're a violinist you're like oh my gosh <laughs> Doesn't yeah. happen at symphony concerts. So much. <laughs> yeah, and a little bit of a different experience, but yeah, it's it it really was a like it's that energy. I mean, it's really there's no other way to define it. It's it's really the sort of like uh, electricity that's in the air. Um, uh, that's and it's all in loving support. Like it's just mm. you know they're about to see this person who's been so influential in their like the soundtrack of their lives, and they're about to see him give a show and. And we're having a chance to, to accompany him. And, and it's, yeah, it was just a very memorable experience and, and vibration to have. Yeah. How awesome. That's really cool. about pottery because i heard you talking about <laughs> you were doing pottery during covid how's that going oh my god um it's going great i've um i've always had a um a love for pottery my very first memory actually as a kid must have been a toddler at the time was um 
was sitting beside my mom. I, I don't know if I was like on a blanket or something on the ground or if I was like in a little like, you know, baby holder or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I remember w- looking up and watching my mom kick throw a wheel. Or, or, yeah, she was using yeah. a, a wheel that had a kick thrower part component. It wasn't, it wasn't electric. She was throwing a pot. And um, it was, yeah, my very first memory as a kid. And, you know, my mom did a lot of it when I was really young. She doesn't do it anymore. but And she just did it as a hobby. Um, and, uh, and you know, so as growing up, I always had a, a real love for home, handmade things. And specifically, you know, bowls and cups and that sort of thing. Uh, and I've always, it's always been on my bucket list of things to learn, but I could never actually take a class because, you know, it involves you being tour, consistently yeah. available, like for six Wednesdays in a row and, you know, musicians, you know, touring That's, and whatnot, yeah. you can't necessarily agree on, you, you can't make something like that. But then the pandemic happened and suddenly like, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I was certainly practicing a lot during the time, doing transcriptions and things, but, you know, there's this, there's some restlessness that comes along with being cooped up, especially if you're used to traveling. And, and I, I've also felt a need to have some other, like, sort of positive um, things that were happening in my life, um, just because of, you know, the trauma of, of what the pandemic was. And um, my, uh, my boyfriend, Michael, and I were taking a walk through one of the neighborhoods nearby, and we passed by this pottery shop i was like oh wait a minute but there are people in there they're doing things hmm so i like i checked out i I looked at various pottery shops um studios in in brooklyn to see who was open and who was actually doing any kind of socially distanced classes this was in like october november Mm. and um and there were there were a few and um and i checked out there was one called art shack brooklyn over in bedsty and they had this i checked it out they had this really big garage space attached to their studio mm-hmm. and they were doing socially distanced classes and they you know when it was when it wasn't raining too hard <laughs> you know they had the the garage door open so there was enough air circulation and they were being really careful about about keeping track of you know who was in the class how many people were in the class and they were limiting the number of weeks so it was like there was i think when i initially signed on they were like just they were offering classes in four week um blocks and then they expanded to six week blocks um, so I've taken now four classes through that particular pottery studio and it's been a really cathartic experience. Um, mm. you know, just the idea of, it's almost like meditation in a way, you mm-hmm. know, you just, you're in the moment, you're focusing on the vessel that you're, or the clay that you're, you're working with. Mm. And in a very lyrical musical way, you're just letting the piece, you know, sort of tell you what it wants to be. I wasn't necessarily going in it with like the idea I'm going to make a cup today or I'm going to make a bowl. I mean, those moments happen too. But especially when I was initially starting, I was just like, I'm going to throw and just work on these skills and what comes out comes out. And, um, yeah, so I, you know, I've got little, some little vases now. I've got some, um, some, uh, some drinking glasses. I've got bowls. Um, and it's been a really, it's been a really, really amazing experience to have as another creative outlet. Um, right. I mean, I've always been someone who enjoys doing stuff with my hands. You probably see it on the camera. I'm always using my hands to <laughs> animate what I say. But um, you know, so violin has always been one thing. I always, I also do knitting and cross stitching, and mm. um, and pottery has been another way that I'm using my hands to make something creative. And um, right. I, I have a membership now since it, since concerts and traveling are starting to resume. Um, I couldn't take any of the summer classes that they were offering, so um, I signed up for a membership 
to the, the studio. So mm -hmm. I'm just working there on my own to, you know, to kind of refine the skills that I've learned so far. Nice. And, um, uh, you know, I just, yeah, I, I go in there. I, I've got, it starts in June, so I'll be able to go in there about 10 times a month to just work on my own. And, um, yeah, it's going to be fun to actually really kind of work on some of these skills because they, you know, you learn a lot over the course of a very short amount of time. And um, there are definitely some things I need to need to get better, <laughs> get better at. So. And baking. You've been baking. Yeah. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm today's. Oh, yes. Today's Sunday. So right. I, um, I'm on, on week the menu 62. for today. <laughs> all right, let's see here. Yeah, I've been getting all my recipes from. Um, so the what New are you Times. calling this series, or are you calling it this? Sunday stress baking, <laughs> and, which is so funny because it started out like uh, it started out um, back in. Let me see here. I've got all my baking goodies. So it started out on March 22nd of 2020. And I basically, it was like, when life gives you lemons, you make a lemon bu uh, lemon bourbon bunt cake. That was how we're all said. I, I don't know if you can see it. Oh, but yummy. Yeah. So it oh that's, that's where it started. And then this is where it's oh gone. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Sarah, this, oh, you're making me hungry. <laughs> so I've, I'm now up to, I haven't missed a Sunday yet. Um, I am up to week, I think, 64, no, mm -hmm. 63. Wow. And um, today I am making, let me see what I found. Um, I am making recently viewed. Where did it go? Ah, well, it's, um, oh yeah, here it is. Almond cake with cardamom and pistachio. Ooh. So we'll see how that goes. It's uh, Delicious. supposed to look like that when it's finished. We'll okay. see. Okay. But that is the most fun. So last week I was in Florida, in Orlando, recording uh, with Chuck Owen in the right. Jazz Surge. And um, uh, I flew down there on Saturday to stay with um, the tenor, one of the tenor players in the band and his wife, who are dear friends of mine. And um, I, so I stayed with them on Saturday. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm rehearsing all day with the band on Sunday, but it's Sunday stress baking day. Um, what, but a lot of the people who've been following my 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 feed are in the band and I was like hmm so last Sunday Sunday morning before we left for Orlando um, I baked up three batches of one of my favorite cookies from mm. the uh, the stress baking it's a salted chocolate chip shortbread cookie oh. and um, brought them over to the band to uh, to have during rehearsal and um, and I quickly became everybody's favorite baker <laughs> I bet, I bet. So any any wrong notes I played didn't matter because I brought forgiven. But I yeah this was so the, the funniest part of it was um, in the end let's see if I can find it here uh, I took a before and after photo so this was the before in the bin mm -hmm. and that's the after just a few crumbs <laughs> a few. if anything. But it was fun. It was it was yeah. fun to actually share that with everybody who you know yeah. they've been like, oh, you actually made something for us. Ah, yeah. So it was awesome. Do you do you know Clarence Penn? You know, we've worked together a, a couple times. I, I played on um, uh, Christian Sands' album "Be Water." Um, yeah. I played on the track "Be Water" too. It got a, a Grammy nomination last cycle, and Clarence is on that track, and we were recording it together. <laughs> but it was done so quickly that it was basically like high and by and like yeah. you know, out we went. Yes. Um, 
but yeah, so I've, I've played with him, but I don't think he would remember me. <laughs> okay. Cause he's, he was on the show a while ago and he's like a, he's a great cook. Oh my God. All the oh, things really? that he's cooking. Yeah. Oh, funny. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully our paths cross and I can, I can bring that up and right. Yeah. Does he, what is he, does he specialize in something in particular? No, he. I mean, really amazing dishes. Like he was making some sort of like uh, Japanese-inspired meatball dish, mm. and like oh. I don't know. Like he every time we still email a little bit, and I'm like, hey, Clarence, what are you making? And you know, <laughs> he was like, his wife is uh, Japanese, and yeah. um, so and he's like he's just a foodie like he just really oh, he makes awesome. makes dinner for his two kids and his wife and it's really sweet but it just made me think about that as you're talking about baking yeah well there, there are a lot of people who've definitely gotten into they well they've found some different skill sets that they didn't know they had during this time you know it's been very cool to see what people have, have um, gotten into yeah. some people got into cooking some people got into gardening um, yeah. Others have gotten into pottery. You know, yeah. it's been it's been really interesting to see how people have sort of discovered different aspects of themselves they just didn't know was, yeah. you know, was there. Other creative venues. Yeah. Um, so um, we're gonna wrap up here in just a second. I'm with a few just quick questions. So what are your what are your essentials when you're practicing? Like what what tools or what things do you like to have around while you're practicing? Hmm. Oh, well, um, oh, there are a lot of things, <laughs> but I, a lot of things come to mind. Like it's sort of like my, my actual setup. Like I have a, a drum throne, like a, that's actually okay. the height of a bar stool, but I, that's my chair. Uh -huh. I'm a chair, got my metronome handy. Um, uh, I usually have a candle nearby. <laughs> mm, nice. Uh, when I, I love practicing, uh, it, it, goes back to my childhood um my mom's the place that my mom and dad designed has these like huge floor-to-ceiling windows like they're like 10 feet tall um stacked on top of each other so like a 20-foot vaulted ceiling so they have these like uh 10 mm. foot high windows a little break and then another 10 foot high window and um it looked out over the woods mm. so i have the like the idea of sunlight and um you know uh Preferably some greenery. We don't really have it here, and like with our apartment set up, but um, we have a great chorus of birds that love to hang out in our stoop. So, um, nice. but just having some light, sunlight as part of my my setup is really important. But you know, as far as what I practice, it always varies from day to day. Um, I mean, I'm always working on something technical. Mm -hmm. You know, as far as um, warm ups go, just like I work with drones a lot to really work on intonation and tone mm -hmm. production. Um, and I'm always doing some intonation work. You know, just, you know, I don't have frets, so i got to yeah. <laughs> work on keeping my intonation up to snuff. Um, you know, and I always have Bach, you know, close by. And, and if there's a longer recording, if, if there's a longer stretch where I'm um, really sort of uh, practice multiple things, and I, you know, uh, I'm always working on transcription, if I can, mm -hmm. if I can get that in there. Um, what's been nice, you know, is, you know, usually, like, pre-COVID, I, I always had on my stand the music I was preparing for for the next gig. And um and that that wasn't there during COVID mm. necessarily yeah. and um to be able to start putting that music on the stand again and to be like all right I'm recording Chuck's music next week I gotta get those <laughs> get those notes learned right. and um you know, now I'm, I just having finished Chuck's album I'm getting ready for Dave Stryker's album now and um and that's really you know it's that goal oriented kind of practice it's been I've missed yeah. it in a way like you know where it's 
I mean, I have goal-oriented things that were happening during COVID, but this is the, like the goal-oriented collaborations that yeah. I missed. And um, it's nice to have those to look forward to again. How long is your typical practice session? During COVID, <laughs> it was a lot longer than it was, you know, before. I mean, yeah. it, again, it depends on, on the day, on the week. Um, mm. uh, if I can get in like three to four hours, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously when I was in college, it was a different story. Like, you know, yeah. it's a lot more time that you're able to spend doing that. Um, so yeah, I, I, if I can get three to four hours in, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at least as long as I'm touching my instrument at least once a day, like that's the goal. Um, yeah. And my boyfriend's actually really been great about that too. Like, you know, he want that was one of his his goals throughout all this, you know, this difficult time. He's like, all right, no matter how I'm feeling, you know, I wanna I wanna play. Like I've got to have contact with my yep. instrument at least once a day. <laughs> and he's he stayed on that. You know, that's every day great. he's been practicing, and um, that's kind of been an inspiration for me. Because you know, that's one thing I know that so many people were going through is like there were friends of ours who didn't touch their instruments for six months because it was just so such a difficult period, not being yeah. able to work and collaborate and travel and you know do their craft. Um, yeah. So we were very conscious of that and wanted to be sure that we, um, for us, it was really important that that we have that physical contact with our instruments every day, no matter what. Yeah. And it's been something that's really carried us through some yeah. of the harder harder days and harder times. So if you're practicing three to three hours a day, say, is that uh, a continuous block or do you break it up? It's usually broken up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think just from my own focus, um, I tend to do better in chunks. Mm -hmm. So like practicing like 45 minutes to an hour and then um, stepping away and doing something else, giving yeah. my, my mind and my body a break and then coming back with a, you know, renewed freshness of sorts sure. um yeah and i think but very rarely unless i'm like really sort of under a, a time time restraint will i practice like two or three hours in a row like my yeah. you know is it, with the recording session it's different you know you're sort of like very much in this headspace of, of accomplishing a lot in a very short amount of time but mm. when it's just me on my own then yeah i tend to, to break things up a bit cool. What are you listening to these days? What's on your... Ooh. Oh, it's constantly changing. <laughs> um, oh, well, let me take a look at my Spotify playlist. <laughs> I've been listening a lot to Brad Meldow recently. Oh, um, He's one of my, my big inspirations. Um, let's see what else. Uh, a lot of Kenny Wheeler mm -hmm. as of late. Um... Wolfgang Mustspiel. I ne I can't say his name correctly. I always butcher it. But yeah, Wolfgang Mustspiel. Um, I've been listening a lot to Bill Frizzell. Um, you know, the, th the Bill for me, there, there's a very special um, uh, connection I have to him. As far as like, I'm mean, he and I have never met. Um, mm -hmm. I hope I get a chance to meet him at, at, uh, someday. But when I during the like. I guess it was in June or so of last year when um, things were settling down a little bit with COVID, like the, the cases weren't spiking as much um, mm -hmm. and the weather was better. Um, people started to do stoop concerts and, right. um, and Michael and I got word of a stoop concert that was happening like a 10 minute walk from our, um, our apartment. And it was, um, uh, Bill Frizzell 
Rudy Royston and um, is it? I'm spacing on the bass player's name right now. It's the bass player that he always uses. I, I can't remember, but I like me right now. Thinking of it. Um, so yeah, but it was uh, so it was those three guys the trio, and we we're like, oh my god, we've got to go. <laughs> it's like ten <laughs> right. minutes away from here. Um, so yeah, we walked, and it was like really like the first live music we'd heard mm. um, in months, yeah. and so many of our friends were there, and it was, so it was the first time we were seeing a bunch of our friends in months. And, um, and, you know, everybody was being really cool, socially distanced, and, and it was the most beautiful, Thomas Morgan, Thomas Morgan, it was the most beautiful concert, like, just, you know, Bill, being Bill, like, you know, playing just, un, and, and that, that trio, just mm-hmm. unbelievable music being made. And the last tune that they played, this was also, like, right when, um, you know, the George Floyd uh, murder had happened and, and everybody's everybody was on edge because mm. of just you know obviously the injustice that had been done in that instance but just the long time in injustice general, yeah um and and just the frustration with that and how everybody was just feeling you know, frustrated with you know what do we do to fix stuff to, to change this yeah and they ended the set playing uh, we will overcome Mm. and it just I mean, everyone's just like oh Emotional, my god yeah. you know and it was it was so meaningful to hear that and that 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 particular conscious very much burned in my brain I, I actually had a chance to talk with Rudy a little bit about it. we were doing a um uh we were doing a, a video recording with the pianist uh, Amina Vigorova um in December of last year and once we all we were finished the gig everyone's packing up I went over to Rudy and I was like I just have to tell you that I was at that Stoop concert that you gave um, uh, with Bill and Thomas um, back in June. And it just, it meant so much to me that mm. you, you all did that. You did the show and that you, you know, that, that particular song you played. And um, it just is a very, it's a very lasting memory and something that gave me um, hope during a very mm. dark time. Yeah. And, um, and he said, yeah, that it, I mean, he was very, you know, very appreciative and very grateful. And he said, yeah, that concert for him is, was very, uh, meaningful as well because for them yeah it was like some, one of the, probably one of the first times they'd played together and to be able to yeah. be around the com- our community like being a community musicians and to feel that energy again through the music that was made it was yeah he said it was a, it was very much burned in his brain too so mm. um i will forever be grateful to that trio and to bill for um that moment of hope and positivity nice. what a great great story who um Who's on your bucket list of people to collaborate with? <laughs> Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Aside no, from it. Bill, yeah. Um, I would no. I would. I would love to play with um, with Bill. Um, one of the people who's been on my bucket list um, is Brian. Brian Blade, and I'll, mm. I'm, I'm so so excited to be playing with him next week. That'll or this be week. amazing. Oh wow. Um, Oh God, the list is so long. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure where to go. Um, I would love to, you know, this is one of the players I absolutely adore is um, Tom Harrell, and oh, I love yeah. his pieces. I love his playing. Great writer. Um, oh yeah, and I, I would love to, um, yeah, to be able to play in a band behind him at some point. I'm just, I, I adore his playing. Mm. Um, so yeah, I have, I have a list that's way too long to. to uh. put no, no, those are great. Those are great. Yeah. How do you hope, uh, what do you hope your peers say about you um, 
or describe describe you as a musician? How how would you like to be seen by your peers? Oh wow. Um <laughs> You know, I I think when I think about that, like I, I think about how like the people who I are part of my musical family. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's not just about the person that you are behind the instrument. Like it's like as far as like who you are as a player, but it's also the person you are when you don't have the instrument in your hand. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I hope that the people who I, I work with think of me as a, a nice person and, you know, like just somebody who's, you know, very, care, very much cares for their craft, but also mm-hmm. cares about the community that, um, that I'm part of, too. You know, I, I love the musicians I play with. I, um, I want to, if I'm playing their music, I want to, I want to play it the way they want it to be played. I want to bring my best to that. I, I hope that you know, the musicians I work with know that I... I I'm always giving it my all when I play with them. Um, and that, uh, yeah, I, I very much value, especially after this year, I very much value um, our opportunity to collaborate. And I'm grateful that they're trusting me to, for that opportunity. So right. I hope that, um, yeah, that that comes through in what I do. And, that I, and I hope that they know I value them too. Like it's, it's really, um, it's a collective experience. And I, um, yeah, I, I want that to be felt and known. So, awesome. That's Yay. What I, I got? Like <laughs> uh, what's so you did this recording with Checo, and what else is coming up, or what's you know what what performances or recording? You have your own recording coming out. Yeah, that's what's, what's coming up. I had that rec- so I actually recorded that in um, October. Oh no, sorry, April of 2019, and it, we finished mixing and mastering it in October. And then the expectation was I was going to release it last year. And then mm. life happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so I didn't really feel it was right to release it without being able to um, really kind of do some shows to promote it and, and all that. So I put the release of, of my album on the back burner um, until just recently. I'm sorry to, to get that ball rolling again. So I'm super mm-hmm. excited about that. That's what the guys, guys I've been playing with for the last 10 years or so. Um, Ike Sturm mm-hmm. on bass, Jesse Lewis on guitar, Jared Schoenig on drums. And then I have, I've got special guest uh, Chris Dingman on Vibes. Um, and Jeff Levinson is producing it. Um, and uh, yeah, and it was all recorded out at Bunker Studio with uh, my good friend Aaron Navizi, um, who's uh, yeah, in charge of that, that great studio out there in, mm. um, in Brooklyn. So that will hopefully be out, if not this year, then early next. Um, okay. Other projects, we have got Dave Stryker's new project being recorded. Um, here uh, next week and then um i'll be doing some work with ben kono here coming up in the fall um uh really great um saxophone player we had a project that he he got a grant through cma chamber music america um to do a recording and we were already do the recording um in early 2000 or sorry 2020 and then of course covid delayed that but we're going to get back in the studio to record it um, in, I think, is it November? It's coming up this fall. Okay. <laughs> um, and then I'll be doing some performances and some recording with uh, guitarist Oscar Peñas. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe so, they're possibly doing some stuff in Europe um, oh, nice. this summer. We're kind of waiting to hear um, what all is going to happen with that. But, um, but I will be doing some work with him um, this summer and then early uh, next, uh, on 22. 
we'll be doing a tour on the Southwest. So, so things are starting to, to roll along and, and um, yeah. things are starting to open up again. It's just, it's been a lot of recording, which is awesome. Um, finally being able to collaborate with people. Um, yeah. Another one, uh, another composer arranger, um, Chris, Christopher Zwar. Um, I'll be doing a song for his album coming up here in August. Um, yeah, so it's it's really awesome to be getting to collaborate with people again, and yeah. and um and to record and and uh, you know when those albums get released, hopefully do some touring again. So I'm ex I'm excited. I'm just I'm just happy to be hanging with all these folks again. Like the, you know, Chuck Owens group. Like we've got a really special bond. I mean, I'm kind of a newbie to the ensemble. Um, I officially joined the band, I guess, with Chuck's last album, um, Whispers in the Wind. And that was the the album that I got a Grammy nomination for with my solo um, right. in 2018. Awesome. But he got three other nominations for that album, and that kind of all brought us together in a really awesome way. Um, and then you know, so to get together last week to record the next project, it was just like a big family reunion. And you know, realizing wow, we haven't been able to do this like <laughs> in over a year, and it felt really weird at first. But then it was like, but it also felt really amazing, mm. and just. It just felt like, you know, yeah, it just felt good to be awesome. doing that again. So I'm, I'm excited for, you know, uh, for what's, you know, the, for the art world to be like, you know, the music world to be reemerging. And, and I'm excited for all my colleagues and friends to finally be able to get back to doing what they love and, um, you know, hoping that we can you know, get people vaccinated and kind of resume some normalcy. Um, yeah. It'd be really awesome. <laughs> yeah. For everyone. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been really great. Where can people find out more about you on social media or wherever? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, as far as social media goes, I'm, I'm mostly on Instagram and Facebook. I'm a little bit on Twitter. I don't do as much with it as I should. Um, but mm -hmm. I, but mostly, most of what I do is on Facebook and, and um, Instagram. Um, and then I've also got uh, my, uh, my website, which I'm going to be doing some revisions with that. But, um, you know, there's something up there now. Um, so you can sign up for a mailing list, which I will hopefully soon have activated and, and uh, up and running. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to start posting concerts up there again soon, since there are some to be um, to be shared. Um, but that's where I, yeah, where I, whenever I have concerts and things that are being done, that's where I post that information. Yeah, and on social is it at Sarah Caswell? Yes, um, it's I think on Instagram it's Sarah Caswell VLN, so short for violin. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's the same. For, I know it's the same for Twitter, Instagram. Okay. Uh, I don't even remember. Or sorry, with, uh, Facebook. I don't remember what it is. But okay. um, there aren't that many Sarah Caswells out there. As long as you don't put an H on the end of my first name, <laughs> you're going to be fine. You're in good shape. <laughs> so, yep. awesome. Well, thank you again. It's it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Oh, likewise. Thanks for having me on. Okay.